needed to start talking about what was happening to us. And um, it was a phenomenal experience to be in a room of OA people and start talking about the relapse and how we were, I remember how mystified we all were because we were all people who had worked really hard in program. We had all gone to lots of meetings, we had all worked the steps, we had all sponsored and been sponsored and yet we were all having this common experience of all of a sudden not being able to control the food anymore. So I won't speak for that group of people, I know what that did for me was it empowered me Oh, and then there was another person who used to talk about being on her own side. She had this radical idea that instead of joining forces with all the people that said, shame on you, you're bad, why can't you do this, you're doing something wrong, if the common thought then was if you're relapsing, you're doing something wrong. Okay? I no longer believe that. I actually believe if you're relapsing, you're probably doing something really right and get more support to keep doing that. Because I think for myself, when the food moves to the forefront these days, which it does in a very gentle way, and all of a sudden I just start noticing myself being unusually hungry, that for me is a sign that something's going on in my emotional life that is really important and needs support to pay attention to. I can't deal with my emotional life by myself. It's too full of all this gunk that I got from my family of origin. Um, but anyway, so that's how I use it now, as a sign that, aha, something needs paying attention to, but it's not the food. If I pay attention to the food, I get pulled deeper into the food. If I pay attention to my life, I get pulled deeper into my life. And um, that's my highest value today. I want to be an alive person. I don't care what I weigh anymore. I want to be an alive person. I want to have access to everything that's inside of me. I want to feed this list of hungers. I want to feed what I'm really hungry for. I never did finish this list. Um, because I got stuck on the knowledge that myself is complete and whole and exactly who she needs to be. So I kind of dovetailed. So we had this meeting because the, the history of 12-step within in San Francisco is really important because San Francisco was really at the forefront of the whole worldwide 12-step within movement. And I'll tell you why. Because we were actually doing it at the same time that World Service was being approached to give us permission to do it, official sanction to do it. We had our secret relapsers meeting where we were, I remember we were even scared to like talk in our whole voice it seemed so, uh, what's the word? I'm not Christian or Catholic, but that, that word where you can like, it seemed like blasphemy. It really, I remember how fragile this sense of, well, maybe we haven't done anything wrong. Maybe we've interpreted things in a way that is setting us up for failure because we looked around us and so many people had disappeared. Nobody stayed in OA when they were having trouble with food. And this seemed, we, we finally saw the insanity of this and we finally saw the insanity of shaming each other for actually having the problem that brought us into the program. I mean, finally, in that room, we saw the insanity of what we were trying to do. And that's where my recovery was born, out of that. So then these two women came back from World Service and talked about the fact that what we were doing in secret 
was happening all over the country. That World Service said we were we could come out of hiding and announce what we were doing. So um, we got really excited, and we formed a 12-step within committee at San Francisco Intergroup. And so you weren't allowed to do service at that point if you weren't abstinent. We said, we no longer accept that. That is not a rule that works for us. Because at the time, you could not only not do service, you couldn't get a sponsor to sponsor you through the steps if you were having trouble with food. You weren't allowed to speak at meetings. This is insanity. Everything about the program that helps people get well, we weren't allowed to participate in. So we got really strong and powerful and said, we're not going to tolerate this anymore. This is my program. There is no place in, uh, in, in the work of AA that says, I have to be shunned, marginalized, and cast off to some corner like I'm allowed to set up chairs at a meeting. Okay, I'm good enough to set up chairs, but I am not good enough to stand up in front of you and tell you my story about compulsive overeating and how I'm struggling to recover. That's insanity. Anyway, as you can tell, it had a lot of emotional... It was the first time in my life I ever found a way to be on my own side. That revolutionary idea. Don't join the people that are condemning you. Stay on your own side and assert your right to have your own experience. So um, I, we went to intergroup. We formed a committee. Actually, what I think we did was we voted in someone to be the chair of intergroup that allowed us to start a committee and suspend the abstinence requirements for our committee so we could get work done because all of us were struggling. We um, created a wish list. I wish I still had a copy of that wish list of everything we wished was in a way to support us. And then we set about creating it. So we had a relapse and recovery retreat. We actually had 12 years in a row of relapse and recovery retreats every year at, uh, I'm not thinking of the place, uh, Black Bear Road down in the hills. Um, they have other retreats there. Anyway, we did 12 years of 12-step within retreats. It was phenomenal. We started, we had at one point three 12-step within meetings a week. Didn't mean that anybody could come. Anyone could come. But the focus was what our relapse was about, what we were learning about ourselves through relapse, where it was sending us, what we were questioning, how we could turn this into something, since we couldn't change it, how we could turn it into something that added to our program rather than send us out into the street somewhere, never to darken OA's door again. We did that. What else did we do? Oh, we started going to um, the committee meetings for any OA event and asked that there be a 12-step within workshop at it. Um, so we did that at Region 2. We did that at OA days, and we started having like days like this. Slowly. I mean, we started them one at a time. It was very exciting. It was very um, cutting edge. It felt really dangerous. And the more we did it, the stronger we got and the stronger our recovery got. 
and what I learned. And so we started advocating for relapsers, working with other relapsers. You can't sponsor me if you don't have relapse experience because you don't. You are working from an entirely different paradigm, and I no longer want that paradigm. I do not want my life being about all or nothing. My personal experience up until that point was is I could be abstinent for a day, for two days, I mean, once the relapse cycle hit. And then I would do something like eat an apple in between meals because I was hungry. And all of a sudden I had to take a nosedive into the food because I did not have permission to eat an apple in between meals when I was hungry. So me personally, I had to find a way to shake off all of the ostensible rules about what was recovery and what wasn't recovery, and I had to find something that worked for me. So we did all those events. In the first year after 12 Step Within was an actual um, committee. I'm keeping my eye on the time. We started late, so I get to go to a quarter two, right? Okay. Um, so we did that all uh, the first year after 12 Step Within was an official committee. And then one day in my isolated little apartment, remember, I'm not working. I, had, I did not have any friends until I came into OA, so OA gave me a whole life. But really, all I was doing was going to meetings, being on committees. OA gave me my access to people. OA gave me a way to, for the first time in my life, touch on that power that I had and feel like a useful human being. Um, and this is in relapse, so this is like 1985, five years into program, halfway through my relapse. Uh, I was perfect for three years. I don't know if I mentioned that. I really was perfect. I did not eat an extra string bean. I do not recommend this for anyone. There is really, and I've seen it not just in myself, but in lots and lots and lots of other people, there is really a boomerang effect. If, if, if you go that route, expect a backlash eventually. For me, it started when I woke up in the middle of the night and ate a carrot. That was so intolerable that I had to go put on 100 pounds. I mean, that's the insanity of this disease, I think, to be locked into that kind of rigidity. Not my choice today. Um, I practice being imperfect <laughs> so that I don't have to set that dynamic up for myself. At any rate, um, so I'm in this little apartment all by myself, and the telephone rang. We still had telephones that rang at the time. It was an actual telephone. And I answered it, and it was this, I feel so old sometimes, and then yet younger than I've ever felt before. I have not gotten to be this person since I was about three years old and my parents put a stop to it. Um, anyway, it was this woman in Canada who was the 12-step within chairperson for world service. And she said to me, I heard you're doing 12-step within activities. Would you like to come to World Service this year to the first official meeting of the World Service Committee and tell us what you're doing? And I was like stunned. It was like, you know, getting a call from Hollywood. It was like, oh my God, they recognized me at last. It was so exciting. So Pierre and I went to, um, 
world service that year. I got myself whatever you had to do. I went to region really quick because I never thought of myself as being that kind of service person. I was very fringe. I was doing all this relapse stuff. I mean, people would avert their eyes when I walked into the room. And I get it. It wasn't about me personally. I carry a message that's really scary for a lot of people because a lot of us want to be dead and pretty and I want to be alive and I'll take whatever I have to look like. I'll pay that price. I don't care. But anyway, um, so we went and we did this workshop and I, we were still, I, I won't say we, I'll speak for myself, although I remember how scared you were too. <laughs> I was really, really scared and yet World Service was the place where they officially welcomed us so I thought I'm going for it I'm going to tell my truth we've been doing these activities for almost a year at that point and we were getting results the first 12 step within workshop we had people were afraid to walk in the door because it would label them as being interested in relapse why would you want to talk about relapse if you were really working a program right so it had grown from that small start to we were having events where we didn't even charge any money and we would make hundreds of dollars we would have no seventh tradition oh we would not charge an entry fee like they did at a lot of OA events we would just put a basket out and we would walk away with hundreds and hundreds of dollars because people were so grateful we were having like a hundred people show up. It was so exciting because there were so many people starving to death for this message. Anyway, um, the message being that for many people, relapse is a part of recovery. It is not a sign of failure. You do not have to leave. Beyond that, everybody gets to choose their own path. But that essentially was the message we were trying to bring through 12 Step Within. That's carrying the message to those who are suffering in the program and are so full of shame that they believe that they have to lose their voice because they're not perfect. Okay? So, um, anyway... Here I am having a moment of being horribly embarrassed at how carried away I get by all of this stuff. However, it is the most important thing that ever happened to me in my life. So I suppose where other people have passion about their children or their careers, I get to have, I get to have found a lot of passion from freeing myself and having other people, helping other people to free themselves from the lie that is the disease of compulsive overeating. The lie being that we can fix compulsive overeating by getting thin. That we can fix compulsive overeating through a food plan. And I know the steps are full of all this wonderful emotional and spiritual work, but still the OA that I came up in really only paid lip service to that part of the program. A true measure of people's recovery was what size they ate and how much they ate and how well they stayed in control of it. So, don't know how it is in San Francisco anymore. My first 13 years in program were here. Then I moved to the East Bay, and, and I had a very difficult time here. I found some more gentleness in the East Bay, and when I started doing the region and world service work, I found a lot more gentleness that helped me embrace this. So, um, so we went to world service, and they scheduled us for two workshops. 
And the first workshop started out small, and by the time we were halfway through, I remember looking up, and no more people could crowd into the room. They were... There, there were people in the doorway and people's heads like sticking up over the door of the heads of other people to hear what we were saying, which is there is room for everyone here that most of us relapse. That relapse is a call to find out what's going on and how you need to take care of yourself. And that just not eating no matter what doesn't necessarily lead to recovery. For some people it does. They are able to do the other work while um, maintaining uh, uh, a healthy weight and eating well and adhering to a lot of the principles of OA. But, you know, we come in with different levels of woundedness. I couldn't do that work and look good at the same time. I remember when I'd lost all the weight, I remember standing in front of a full-length mirror and being so freaked out because my insides were a monster. I mean, I lived as a monster. And to not have the outside match that, I couldn't tolerate it. I can't explain it. It probably sounds crazy to you, and in a certain way it is, and in a certain way it makes perfect sense to me. I couldn't look at who I looked like, which when I was like 28 years old and weighed 125 pounds, I did look like a Barbie doll. I couldn't look at that Barbie doll and have any connection to her because I was a... I was a monster inside. I was unacceptable. I was all full of all those things my parents could not tolerate. Feelings and hunger and desire and stuff that didn't make sense. So um, some, so some people can do it that way. Other people can't. And it was very exciting to see the response at 12 Step Within at World Service. And I came home with a renewed commitment to follow my own path and not get distracted by other people's opinions about what I was doing. I was told, I went to an OA dance, I was told um, that the eyes of OA, Joan, are on your hips. And I remember thinking, the eyes of OA are on my hips. I actually knew that was probably correct. There were a lot of people sitting back going, well, look what she's doing. Let's pay attention to how much she weighs and see. That, that will tell us whether she's on the track of something. So um, here's what else I learned. A couple more lists. Uh, along the way, climbing out of relapse, doing this marvelous 12-step within work, I learned what keeps me hungry. You know that, that line about the hunger no food can fill? What keeps that hunger alive in me is silence, isolation, fear, catastrophic thinking. There's a part of my brain that always goes to the worst case scenario. Uh, focusing on food. There is an old line that I have always really related to. You can never get enough of what you don't really want. And so focusing on the food for me is what keeps me hungry. Uh, focusing on my weight also keeps me hungry. Threats, and I don't even need you guys anymore to make threats. It's the threats I make to myself. If I don't get a handle on things, I'm going to fall off the edge of the world. You know, if I don't get a handle on things, I am going to wind up 500 pounds. Um, what keeps me hungry is listening to other people's opinions about how I should live my life, and that includes how I should eat. What keeps me hungry is comparing myself to other people. 
I have to be very, very careful what OA meetings I go to. Because if I go to OA meetings where the emphasis is on controlling food and looking good, my little brain finds that it's like looking at porn for me. It finds it so seductive that the next thing I know, I'm looking at myself going, why can't you live on lettuce and tomatoes? Why do you weigh the, why can't you lose another 20 or 30 pounds? And then I'm sunk. Then I, I lose track of my life for however long it takes me to reach out and get help and remember what my program is. What keeps me hungry is um, pretending I'm okay when I'm not okay. So that's why it's necessary for me to talk about how anxious I get when, and how distracted I get when people walk in. And I understand there's a million reasons for that. I'm not being critical of it, but that's why I have to talk about what my actual experience is. Um, I remember once a long time ago, way before recovery, I was um, uh, uh, doing something in a theater, and um, the critique I got was, I get the feeling, Joan, that I could slice you, very competent job, but I have the feeling that I could slice your head off, set it on the stage next to you, and you would continue going without a beat. You wouldn't lose a beat. And that's who I was. I was so disconnected from myself that I just got used to functioning over everything, and I really try not to do that anymore because it makes me really hungry. And we've got lunch in a half an hour, and I, I want my lunch to be enough because it usually is. Um, what keeps me hungry is needing to do things perfectly. Uh, what keeps me hungry is that sense of panic that I am really good at feeding, that something bad is going to happen, but I could prevent it by being good enough and following the rules sharp enough and being blameless enough. So when something bad happens, nobody will be able to look at me and say I had any part in it because I have kept myself completely free of any possibility of anybody blaming me for anything. Of course, you have to be willing to die in order to be in that position. So um, it doesn't work for very long. What feeds or satisfies my hunger? Another list. This is what I've learned. Talking, laughing, self-reflection, being self-centered. In my family, the worst thing you could say about a human being was that they were selfish. So I learned to be completely selfless. I learned to have no self. And it turns out that what helps that sense of I could eat the refrigerator like I knew no end. I never, the kind of compulsive overeater I was, was when I was binging, I didn't stop until physically it started, and I wasn't bulimic, until physically it started coming out of me from all ends. That's when I would stop. So when I say eating the refrigerator, that's really what I mean. That's the kind of binge eater. I ate until I was in pain. I ate um, until I wasn't comfortable laying down, sitting up. I was one of those people that worried that you were going to have to take me to the hospital because my stomach was going to explode. That's the kind of eater I was. Of course, the kind of anorexic I was also, because I carry both parts, is my goal was to be able to live on air. There was those breatharians around in the 80s, and really that's what I aspired to because I wanted to have no needs. I was raised that needs were a really bad thing, and especially my needs. My needs were 
way off the charts. So I wanted to have no needs. I did not want to need food. I did not want to need anything. I did not want to need you because you could turn on me at any minute. So um, what feeds and satisfies my hungry hunger? being self-centered, paying attention to my needs. Um, art, music, writing, everything that's creative, nature, beauty, communicating about hard issues. So as much as there's a part of me embarrassed by like all my energy and my feelings that I'm showing to you, I feel very, very naked and vulnerable and probably at the break I'm going to have to like run out of here and like get back in touch with myself because I feel like I've given away the store. Um, but it really does satisfy my hunger, so I'm willing to do it. Um, yelling when I'm angry and crying when I'm sad. Therapy, I'm one of those people that needed lots and lots of therapy. I have 30 years of recovery in Overeaters Anonymous. I have 30 years of therapy. Very regular, deep therapy and as much as I could get. At one point, I was in therapy three times a week and in a meeting every day. That's the kind of person I was when I got here. I needed that much support. Um, what feeds and satisfies my hunger is asking for help. I was told when I first got here that I never needed to do anything scary by myself alone. And I had done everything in my life alone. And everything was scary. So I took always word for it. To this day, I make phone calls before I need to do something scary and I make a phone call afterwards. Because I want to bring all of you along with my life. It makes me braver. Um, what feeds and satisfied my hunger is going to meetings, meditating. It took me 20 years to be able to meditate. It is a big challenge to sit with yourself when you have no self. So I was very unsuccessful in my attempts to meditate for the first 20 years. In fact, I really didn't try very much. It was very terrifying. I was convinced that what was inside was kind of like a free-fall emptiness. And it was very, very dark. And it was very, very frightening. Of course, what was there was all my feelings, all my unmet needs, all the trauma in my life that I was never able to talk about as trauma because it made my parents too uncomfortable. That's what was in there. So I try and tell people who say they're struggling with meditating that it's really okay. My experience was I couldn't go there until I could go there. And when I went there, I found myself going with group-led mindfulness training because that was safe enough for me. In a group of people where all you were doing was asked to be present in the present moment, I found that really, really helpful because all my life I was as far away from the present moment as I could get because the present was generally too filled with uh, scary things. Um, honesty feeds me, identifying with other people, breathing deeply. I'm one of those people that used to breathe from here up, like pant, and it kept me in an anxiety state, and I didn't have anyone around me to tell me that the way you deal with anxiety is to breathe all the way down here, but of course that would have put me in my belly, and I rejected my belly. My belly was like one of those hateful, hideous parts of me. So... Um, Deliberate self-care, feeling useful, which I got through service in OA. I think OA is a phenomenal program. I think it's brilliantly constructed. It's like a laboratory for uh, healing yourself. So we get to have relationships with each other and make mistakes and make amends. And we get to, to do service and feel what it's like to counter that internal voice that says we're worthless 
it's, it's a marvelous experience. So I've done lots of service. And then it became time in my program to not do so much service and start focusing on the life that my work in OA has allowed me to have. Now I have a very rich and full life, and I do only small amounts of service. I am always willing to go out on a limb for 12-step within, though, because it's so important to me. Um, being with my pain in loving kindness instead of trying to escape it. Um, meeting a challenge. Allowing my humanness to be seen and named and loved. Making mistakes and learning from them. Making mistakes and laughing at them. That's, uh, those are the things that satisfy my hunger. Um, drawing to a conclusion. Paying attention to time. Um, I want to say that everything I learned, I learned through doing the step work with people who I learned to attract that weren't like my family of origin, but other people who were struggling with relapse and wanted to try and keep an open heart and not jump on the bandwagon and hate themselves. I have not met anyone in OA who has what I want that got there through hating themselves. I haven't. I know a lot of really unhappy, thin people, but I do not know anyone who has that joy of living that were promised in the 12 steps that did it by hating themselves. Um, so I try and be really specific about what I do and don't do with food. Again, because so, so that people have something to measure their experience against. And again, it feels like being really vulnerable out there. And, you know, if you want to do character assassination, here I am. Because I do not do things the approved OA way. I have no forbidden foods. I am so attached to this identity as being a bad person that if I have bad foods and I have a day where I need to feel bad, I go right for them. So I had to work really, really hard and this wasn't like a thinking process. I had to actually work on it. Um, there was a time that my recovery food plan, which I don't even really use that term for myself anymore, but mid-stage when I was coming out of relapse was three meals a day and uh, a 50 cent bag of M&M's. And it had to be because I had I had this wonderful sponsor that moved to San Francisco for those three years said to me, it's not about what you do at your meals, it's about living your life in between. And I had to break, I had, it felt for me, I'm a pretty dramatic person, I had to do something really dramatic to show myself that there is no such thing as good or bad foods. It's what I use them for. It's my desire to escape my life. And some foods work better than others to do that. Okay, so, um, so I have no forbidden foods. My food plan today, and again, I'm not advocating anyone coming into OA and adopting this way of having a food plan. This is what's grown for me over 30 years, is I do the best, I do my best to eat when I'm hungry and stop when I'm, when I'm full. I'm also a vegetarian, which helps a bit. But I really find that for me, having as few food rules as possible is really helpful. Now, that doesn't mean that I give myself carte blanche to go out there and eat 
24 hours a day. I know if I start eating more than a simple breakfast or a simple lunch or a simple dinner, there is emotional and spiritual stuff going on that I need to talk to somebody about. And I can do that today before it turns into a 100-pound relapse. Um, I have no goal weight. I talked about that earlier. Um, uh, For me, having a goal weight is acting against the message that I get from the steps. Having a goal weight is saying, I know better than my higher power what I should weigh. I believe that we are all born with a variety of different body types. My body type was not meant to be 115 pounds. That is not healthy for me. What's healthy is where I am right now because it's based on how I eat, how I take care of myself so that I don't have to give my life away to food or food planning or self-hate around food. I give my life away to other things. I know that food has taken all it's getting of my life. I desperately want to be in recovery, but I define recovery for myself differently now. My highest value used to be, like I said, feeling in control of food and looking good. My highest value now is being alive, and I will do whatever it takes to be fully alive and present in the moment and take advantage of the opportunities that life is giving me. I used to live my life when I came into OA hidden away in a very small space because that that was all I could control and I needed to be in control of everything. So I had no relationships, very few friends, never dated, seriously underemployed because that I could control. Now I lead this wildly out of control life and I get lots and lots of support to stay as present as possible in it. I practice acceptance and compassion, especially when things are happening that I don't like. Um, I pray and I do meditate when I can. I also get physical activity, which I couldn't do for a very long time because I could not be present in my body. I had so much stuff going in here that I could not bear to know about that I couldn't actually be physically active. For me, it's been a long, slow process about being able to be physically active in this body. So, um, I don't know if I forgot anything that's important for me to say. If I did, I will um, do it uh, for wrap-up at the end. I really thank those of you who have showed up for this uh, workshop. I think part of what the wonderful San Francisco Committee is trying to do now, because of the work of those of us in the mid-80s through the mid-90s, we now have relapse and recovery literature. It mentions the topic of relapse in our 12 and 12. I mean, that's a word that exists in the OA lexicon now. And our hope was that 12-step within wouldn't be needed for very long because the whole concept would be integrated into OA. But over time, it seems to have dissipated in San Francisco. And so this phenomenal 12-step within committee is brave enough to start trying to resurrect it again and give it uh, uh, a voice and a face and energy. And so I really commend you guys for this. I am really thrilled. I am really thrilled because I'm not in a place to do this anymore, and I am really happy that people are doing it. So bless you all for being willing to show up here because um, it's not the easiest place to come. It's much easier to believe that, you know, the, the 
four ounces of chicken and the, um, uh, the finger vegetables is your pathway to redemption. And it's hard to, like, open up and allow everybody to do, in a way, what they need to do and allow for differences. So thank you.